All right, tonight, if you have a Bible, book of Isaiah, book of Matthew, go ahead and mark those, Isaiah and Matthew. Now, on Sunday, we spent a little time looking at the basic principles around surrounding Advent, right? Everybody remember those four? First one was hope, second, preparation, third, anticipation, fourth, joy. Remember those were the four basic principles that we talked about on Sunday? We, we didn't go through all of them. We only worked on hope, right? And we had one left to go, and then we were going to then move to preparation, and then uh, work on ant- anticipation and joy. Um, that was my original intent, but looking at the readings for Sunday, we may uh, use Sunday to, to, to take care of, the, we'll wrap up the end of hope, then we'll look at preparation, and then we'll, because we're going to connect that with the readings for Sunday, because I think they just fit perfectly. So that's what we will do on Sunday. So for tonight, we're going to go to the lectionary readings for tonight for this Wednesday of the first week of Advent. And we're going to just kind of more do a devotional message on this. Um, I had a certain direction I wanted to go with this. And then when I was reading them, the passages again, then I had a a second approach. So I don't know which way we're going to go. We're going to find out together. I have a couple in my mind, but we'll, we'll see where we end up. Before we do so, just because we're going to be following the lectionary throughout the entire year, and I know we're still very early on in that journey. We've talked about this before, but let me just kind of explain how this would work. Let's say in a Catholic church, if you don't know, the Mass is broken up into different sections. And one of those sections is called the Liturgy of the Word, right? And that is the reading and the proclamation of Scripture, right? So that would be the readings and the homily. And there's a structure uh, that occurs in doing it, and in so doing it, there's a lot of symbolism here, right? So I'm just going to explain a little bit here, all right? So for the liturgy of the word, the reader goes to the lectern for the first reading, right? So he goes to the lectern to read, and then um, he uh, uh, all sit and listen, so everyone sits to listen, and to indicate the end of the reading, the reader will add, this is the word of the Lord, and everyone responds, Thanks be to God. If you don't know that, that's what how everyone responds. Thanks be to God, all right? Um, if there is a second reading, um, he'll do the same thing at, uh, as before. At the end of the reading, he will say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, right? All right, then, then that's what uh, follows. Now, there's a couple of other things that may follow here that we could... Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, read all of this so that you'll know. You'll just have the, the idea. All right. You can, at this point, the Alleluia or another chant can follow after that second reading. Meanwhile, if incense is used, the priest puts some in the censer. Then the deacon who is to proclaim the gospel bows before the priest and in a very low voice says, Father, give me your blessing. The priest will say in a low voice, the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you may worthily proclaim his gospel in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The deacon will answer, Amen. All right. If there is no deacon, the priest will bow before the altar and will say this quietly. Almighty God, cleanse my heart and my lips that I may worthily proclaim your gospel. Then the deacon or the priest goes to the lectern. 
He may be accompanied by ministers with incense and candles. And he sings or he will say, the Lord be with you and the people answer and also with you. All right. Then the deacon or priest will sing or say a reading from the Holy Gospel according to and then whichever it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, he makes uh, the sign of the cross on the book, on the, on the lectionary. He makes the sign of the cross. And then on his forehead, on his lips, and then on his chest. All right? And everybody understand what that represents, right? Let my mind think on your word. Let my mouth proclaim it. And let my heart love it or desire it. Right? All right? So uh, then... Uh, the people will respond, glory to you, Lord, right? At the end of the gospel reading, right? At the end of the gospel, um, he will say, this is the gospel of the Lord. And everyone uh, will re- respond, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what everyone responds. Then the priest will bow to kiss the book. He kisses the gospel. And does anyone know what he whispers as he kisses the book? May the words of the gospel wipe away our sins. Then the homily will be preached. That's all of the things that are said, all of the symbolism. It's all there, which is, it's very, I mean, there's a lot of positive things there that are happening, right? The focus obviously is on scripture. The focus is on God. The focus is on his glory, his word, you know, him forgiving our sins. So that's just the way it is structured and the way it's organized. What not, you know, just so that you understand kind of the history because they had a clear, you know, liturgical way of doing everything. Everything had a, a, a form and, and steps in which uh, were taken. But for us tonight, we will be going to the lectionary and we're going to do both readings, the first reading and the gospel reading, Okay. Sound, does that sound good with everyone? All right, I hope so. All right, let's go to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Instead of reading it from the lectionary, I'll read it from the King James. And then if we need a different translation at any point, we will go to the other. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, start in verse 6. All right, I'm going to try not to emphasize anything, but, uh, but obviously there'll be some parts here that I'll want you to, hopefully, maybe you'll see that. So you pay attention to what we should emphasize, and I'll try not to emphasize it. Isaiah 25, verse 6, and it begins, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of morrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will, let's see how far do we want to go, all the way to 10. He will swallow up death and victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off faces. Rebuke of his people shall he take away from, all, from off all the earth for the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in the day, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Everybody see that? Think 
you can see what possibly jumps out at you, what possibly doesn't. The one thing, now, this is like the, I don't know how many different times I've read this now, but once again, something else just jumped out at me because you see how many times it talks about waiting? See that? Okay, yeah, well, this mountain definitely jumped out at me, but this time, all right, that was like the second or third time I read it, but this time waiting jumped up because one of the basic principles for uh, Advent was anticipation. Remember that? All right, so we could kind of connect it to that, but we won't tonight, but just keep that in mind. I just saw that. The mountain obviously is something that jumped out at me, and you'll see why when we go to the gospel reading, which is Matthew chapter 15. Uh, hang on, let me... Okay, verse 9. Everybody see it? Yeah. Everybody see it in 9? Okay, what is the NIV used? Yeah. Okay, you trust it. So it's so if even if you trust it, even if you translate it waiting, obviously it would be waiting with a, tr- a sense of trust involved. So the the concept would still be there. Okay, all right. Then go to Matthew chapter fifteen. Matthew chapter fifteen, and we're going to jump down to verse twenty nine. All right. Everybody there? Matthew 15, 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. Now you can see why the word mountain jumps out. Because in Isaiah, everything happens in a mountain. Here, everything that's going to happen is happening in a mountain. Okay, so clearly you can see the, link, the, the connection there. Verse 30. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitudes wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, just may want to pay close attention to that verse, because I think Jesus uses that somewhere, does he not? If you don't remember, you may want to start thinking because he does. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, when shall we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill such great multitude? And Jesus saith unto him, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven and a little, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks, break them and gave his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up all the broken meat that was uh, left, seven baskets full. And they did eat, uh, and they that did eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. Everybody, I think everyone knows that, that story very, very well, right? There's been a million sermons preached on that sermon. Typically, when it goes to our, there's been a million of sermons preached on that passage. And typically, when a sermon is preached on that passage, what's typically emphasized in that passage? The miracle. Which miracle? The fish and the loaves. And typically, that miracle is presented in what way? 
How is it, how is it, what's the main emphasis of the miracle in most sermons? Nobody remembers? I mean, because, I, I mean, if you listen to a lot of sermons, okay, well, if you listen to a lot of sermons, it kind of comes, what typically comes out is that we should give God the little that we have because God can do something great with because he took the, what did he take? Yeah, few fish, right? Everybody see that? Some loaves and fish. And then he fed everyone, right? And if, God, if we will trust God with our, our uh, lack thereof, like if we'll trust him with our little, he'll turn it into something plentiful, something abundant. And a lot of times the emphasis becomes on what we do. Instead of taking the emphasis on what God does, it almost turns into an emphasis of what we do. All right. Now, others will turn it into now more charismatic world will turn it into all the healings. They'll focus on all the healings and say, if we will believe we can all be healed. Right. They'll go there. But over and over and over, it kind of becomes the emphasis is on us. Now, what I want to do is not go in that direction. I don't want to talk about, hey, how much do you have in your hand tonight? If you only have a little bit and you give it to God, God will bless it. And, okay, I'm not going to do all of that, right? Okay, um, we're not, we're not going to turn it into a stewardship sermon or, or a giving sermon. Um, we're not, I don't want to approach it that way. I want to go to Isaiah first, ask some basic hermeneutical questions in regards to it, come back to Matthew, see how the two relate, and then look at some different ways and how to possibly approach it. All right, so let's go back to the first reading, which was where? Isaiah 25, all right? Isaiah 25. Let's look carefully here and see what we can find. All right, everybody ready? Isaiah 25, let's start in verse, verse six is where we started, right? And in this mountain... Shall the Lord of hosts make unto all the people a feast of fat things? Let's stop right here. Right? Let's see. Now, you can use any device you have. You can, you can do anything. Talk amongst yourselves. Do whatever you can. Can you figure out, I'll give you time to work on it, what mountain this is possibly referring to? Because does it not specifically state this mountain? Does the NIV state this mountain? All right. Okay. You can, you can look and see what you can find. You do, do, do whatever you want to look at and see what you can find. I'm going to look here. Okay, we have Mount Zion. Okay. All right. That's, there's a contest. So that's a good way to look. All right. Uh, uh, Stephen, if you have a Bible dictionary, see if you can find an entry for Mount Zion. Okay. While y'all are looking, um, I... Uh, well, yeah, well, you can try it, or just look up Zion. See, then I'll probably say, I'll probably say Mount of. That's what I would probably go with. All right? Y'all can look around, see what you can find. See what you can find. What? Yeah? Did you have a question? Oh, okay. I was like, did you have a question? 
see what you can find. Now, while you were doing that, I, I, uh, I asked a, the AI chat box, what about Isaiah 25.6, which mountain, or, yeah, uh, yes, 25.6, okay, yes. And uh, it gave me an answer. It's already give, typed out its answer, so I can, you know, you're, you're not as fast as AI, so. See, AI, AI, oh, well, uh, actually, Sarah did. Oh, true, true, good point, good point. All right, okay, you don't find anything? Yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought Zion, and it should say Mount Up is what I figured. All right, see if you find anything. Yeah. Nothing? What do you have? What do you have? What do you have? Mm-hmm. So when I went through a progression, it referenced multiple things. Okay, so it began to reference a specific place in Jerusalem. Okay. Okay, so it started with the fortress, then it goes to the hill. Right, so then the whole city of Jerusalem becomes, in a sense, Mount Zion. All right, right. That's what, okay, that's what I wanted us to see. It had a progression of thought, right? Or, or it made a reference to this place, to, a, to the fortress, then to the mountain, then ultimately to the whole city, right? And, to, and including, obviously, where the temple was, all right? Did you, uh, were you looking anything up, Sarah? All right, so I think, now, uh, AI, just so that, you know, just because it, it was simple to look up, it says this, in Isaiah 25, 6, the mountain being referenced is often interpreted symbolically rather than being a specific literal mountain. All right, so the AI immediately throws in that some are going to immediately begin to interpret this all as what? Symbolically or allegorically. All right, then they quote the verse, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Then the next paragraph, AI stated this, this verse is seen as a prophecy about a future time of abundant blessings and joy in the presence of God. Now stop right there. So they talk about it being a prophecy. So what do we have? We have two concepts coming together, right? Symbolic, but future. So then we have to ask what two questions. If it's future, when was it? And was it fulfilled 
symbolically or was it fulfilled literally, right? That would that be, obviously that would be questions we would have to ask. They go on to say this, the reference to a mountain is symbolic, once again, they're going to use that phrase, of a place of exaltation and divine intervention. It signifies a high and elevated place where God's abundance and blessings are poured out upon all people. The exact identification of the mountain in this verse remains open to interpretation and may vary depending on... Now, I want you to hear this. This is worth a million dollars, right? This is why I pay for the AI chat box, okay? Because this is just awesome because sometimes AI is better than any uh, church pastor or commentary, right? Because listen what they say. See if you catch this. The exact, exact identification of the mountain in this verse remains open to interpretation and may vary depending on... What do you think the interpretation depends on? Your theological perspective. That is so wrong. That, does everybody understand that's wrong? That's how it works. So even AI knows that's how it works. Your theology should not determine how you interpret it. You interpret it based off rules of interpretation. Then once you come to an interpretation, that should determine your theological perspective. But even AI knows what we do here, right? Now, listen, this is what they go on to say. Some interpret it as Mount Zion, representing Jerusalem, or, okay, some say it represents Jerusalem, or starts with an H. Jerusalem is in, is, there's two words here. The first one starts with an H. It represents Jerusalem or heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly Jerusalem. All right, everybody still with me? While others understand it as a metaphorical representation of God's kingdom and the messianic age. All right, this leaves me with a million choices here, right? Leaves me with a million choices. So I don't know exactly what to do. I know that it happens in the mountain. Obviously, those who put together the lectionary, you may think they may have an idea in their mind how it works, right? Because in it, interesting, they put uh, Isaiah 25 with Matthew 15, where both events happen on a mountain. Are they comparing or connecting the events? Are they saying one is a fulfillment of the other? I would have a hard time saying it's a fulfillment unless it's just very symbolic and allegorical. And if this, if the Isaiah one is symbolic and allegorical, what could someone say about the one in Matthew? It's not literal either. You see what happens once you start down that path? Why? I don't know why. Okay. I'm just saying that's the typical, once you get to Isaiah, there's an entire school of thought that makes all of it uh, almost allegorical. And the main reason is if you take it too literal, then you have literal promises to a literal Israel that has to be literally fulfilled. And that goes against their entire, that goes there against their entire theology. Right? So if you know anyone reformed, they're going to make most of Isaiah allegorical. Why? Because Israel can't be Israel. Jerusalem can't be, Jerusalem can be heavenly Jerusalem. The mountain can't be a literal mountain. It can be a figurative mountain. Uh, they have to change everything. 
Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Now, let's go back through it. So let's see what, so here's what we would say, Isaiah 25, 6, and in this month. Now, I'm just going to stress from a textual perspective, because that's what Sarah did. And in, uh, first I pointed out, and in this mountain, to me, the text is screaming at you that there is a specific mountain in mind here. That's at least the way I read it. I could be wrong, but that's the way I read it. I know AI doesn't emphasize that, but I'm going to emphasize that. When I read something said, this mountain, that to me is emphasizing a location, right? If it just says, and in a mountain, maybe I could go with a much more loose interpretation, but this mountain. Now you said, because in Isaiah 24, 23, which is, well, (laughs) the last verse says, then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before the ancient, uh, before his ancients gloriously. Now, even right there, if that's literal, we, I, you know, you can see why an amillennialist may not want that to be literal, right? Because that would have literally God reigning where? In Jerusalem. And they say that's, no, it's symbolic. So you can see why, okay? But, so I think the textual approach then would clearly mean in 25 when we get to 6 and in this mountain the this mountain has to refer to the pre, the, the last mount the mountain that was ref, referenced in the last place which would be 2423 and would be Mount Zion. So that's that's what I think that it's Mount Zion. Now, here's so if it's Mount Zion, I'm going to go with I'm going to we're just going to we're going to play a little game here, right? I'm going to go with Mount Zion being Jerusalem. And I'm going to go with literal. I'm not going to go with heavenly Jerusalem. I'm not going to go that direction, okay? Now, here's what we need to figure out. What does Isaiah say is going to happen? So let's break this down, all right? The location is where? Well, we're going to say Jerusalem, right? Okay, does everybody, do we feel okay with that? All right, so we're going to go, the location is Jerusalem. Now, we need to write down, we need to, someone write these down in order, everything that's going to happen, okay? What does Isaiah prophesy here? Oh, I'm not even going to put prophesy. What does Isaiah describe as happening? I'm not going to, because I don't want to, I don't want to uh, presuppose anything, okay? So what's the first thing that's supposed to happen? No, we're going to just go in verse six. We're just going to go with the reading. Just going to go with the reading, all right? Okay, a, a feast. There's going to be a feast, all right? So you can put the first thing, it's going to be a feast, and then it describes what the feast is going to be of, right? And what is it going to be of? So rich foods, uh, wines, meats, anything else? Yeah, we got rich food a banquet of aged wine, and the best meats. So we're going to have, uh, we're, oh, we're going to have rich foods, uh, aged wine, the best of meats, some translations say, or the finest of wines. But we're going to have very good wine, very good food, and the very best meat. Everybody got that? That seems very, very specific. Seem, I think it's very specific, okay? Uh, anything else happens there? I don't think there is. All right, what happens in verse 7? 
Yeah, okay, and that, oh, very good. Uh, and the Lord of hosts shall make unto all the people a feast. So this clearly describes God is going to be the one making it. All right, so God is the one making it. So we should say a God-prepared feast. We'll call that number one. A God-prepared feast is going to occur in this mountain. A God-prepared feast. And if you want to write down what it's going to be of, very good food, best meats, and the best wine. Right? Best of everything. What's the second thing that's going to happen? Okay, now this is where it gets interesting. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the coverings cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. So he's going to destroy a veil, a covering. How does the NIV describe it? A shroud. Well, uh, yeah, a figurative something that is, um, and this is where it can get complicated, right? Because we're making the previous verse very literal. Now, do we make this one? Well, we know it's not, we don't think it's an actual covering. So it's some kind of, something that's blinding the people. Whatever is blinding the people, God is going to destroy. He's going to remove, right? He's going to remove. Does everyone feel all comfortable with that? Yes? Okay. We, I mean, we can look up some things if we need to, right? I mean, AI's sitting here waiting for me. Well, we can try, but we won't do that now, okay? We'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to move forward, but just note, something that's going to cover them, he's going to destroy. We may not understand exactly what it is, but we can at least figure that out, right? right? Does it say anything else is going to happen here? Yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever this thing that's covering them is going to be destroyed. Whatever is blinding, covering, it's going to be, it's going to be gone. All right. So the first thing is a feast prepared by the Lord. The second thing is God is going to destroy this covering that is somehow blinding peoples and nations. Okay, next. He will swallow up death and victory. Let's stop right there. He's going he's gonna to swallow up death and victory. He's going to defeat death. He's going to defeat death. What is he going to do next? He's going to wipe away tears from off all faces. He's going to wipe away tears from all faces. All right? So God's going to, he's going to get rid of this veil. He's going to get rid of, destroy death. He's going to uh, wipe away all tears. What's the next thing? And the rebuke of his people should be taken away from off the earth where the Lord has spoken it. Well, I'm, I'm going to separate that. He's going to get rid of the tears and he's going to get rid of what? The rebuke of his people. How does the NIV translate rebuke of his people? The disgrace of his people, I think. Yeah, he's going to remove whatever has caused disgrace, whatever has caused people to speak ill of them, he's going to get rid of it. Now, in the historical context, we know what that's referencing first and foremost. He's writing to people who's going to be where? Babylonian captivity, right? Everybody remember that? Everybody remember that, right? 
Right? So clearly mean all the things that brings disgrace or pain or suffering to Israel, he's going to remove it. And I'm going to say Israel, I know the reformed people will be like, how dare you? It's the church. Okay. All right. I, like, I don't know. Like, I'm just tired of that battle. I'm tired of that battle. There's no, I mean, look, let's just take five seconds to do this. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary. Let's just take five seconds. Look up the book of Isaiah. And just tell me where it gives you like the basic purpose of the book. It should take you about five seconds to, to find it. I can well, I could do AI, yeah, I could do that, but but it'll give me it'll give me like four paragraphs. Okay, I don't I don't just look up book of Isaiah and just it should really quickly tell you the basic purpose of the book. Okay. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, just immediately, we know where the book is being talking about. It's judgment upon the nation of Judah. So you can't have judgment on Judah, and then you get to the good part, and it's no longer for... Judah, I mean, that's so just, I don't understand that hermeneutic. Hey, because they will tell you that judgment on Judah is what? Real and literal. And then the good part, they'll say, well, that's not for them. That's for us. Yeah, that's such, oh, man. So just, it only takes a couple of minutes to just read, and, those, and the, it's going to describe that the purpose of the book is a message to whom? The people going into captivity, right? It's words of warning, and it's words of comfort. And and the words of warning has to be the same people who are going to get the comfort. Because why would you get the comfort to people who have nothing to do with it? It makes no sense. All right. So everybody okay with that? All right. So he's going to remove the rebuke off the people. All right. Everybody got that? All right. Um, Then, so what's the next thing that's going going to happen? Verse nine, something seems like something is going, something is going to happen as a result of all of these things. So let's go back through. So let's do this. Let's do this. First, we have the place. The place we think is Mount Zion. What are the things that are going to happen? Number one, a prepared feast by God. Number two, he's going to destroy the veil, the shroud, whatever is covering their minds, whatever is blinding them. Number three, he's going to destroy death. Number four, wipe away tears. Number five, remove the rebuke. Now, I, I think we should interpret verse 9 as doing what? The, the response or the result of this. Or I'm going to call it the result. Right? So we got the place. We got the, what do you want to call them? The place, the events, right? And then the results. Right? And so what's the first result? And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The people are going to acknowledge. The people are going to respond with praise and salvation that all the things they've been waiting for, it's finally here. Now, immediately that begins to tell me, hmm, I don't know what that's ever happened, especially when you refer to Israel, right? 
I don't even know if they really reacted that way when they came out of Babylonian captivity. Well, well, clearly, right. Well, obviously, right. But I'm saying, even if you wanted to make all of those things metaphorical and say, well, when they came out of Babylonian captivity, in a sense, the rebuke had been lifted, death had been swallowed, and all their tears are gone because they've been removed. You could try to make it metaphorical, but I, think, I don't think that they necessarily all had a great reaction coming out of Babylonian captivity because some people didn't even want to come back. And then when they got back, they didn't, they didn't want to even build the temple. That's why the prophets have to be sent to say, hey, guys, do you think maybe you should build the temple now? You've built all your houses. Right? Remember? Right? So I, so I, I, I think now we're maybe in somewhere where we know this hasn't happened. What happens in verse 10? For in this mountain shall be the hand of the Lord rest. Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Right? And I see how far did they want us to go? I keep forgetting where they want me to stop. Okay, that's where they wanted us to stop, right? Okay. All right. Um, was it eight? Okay, they don't. Okay. All right. Okay, well, mine says six, mine says six through ten. So. Okay. Oh, 10A. So when they say 10A, the way they stop it, for, hand of the, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain is where they stop it. All right. For, the, for in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest. So they don't want us to even go into... So they have a specific... So you can really see what they're focusing on then. What do they start it with? The mountain or where do they end it with? The mountain. Clearly the mountain. All right. Clearly the mountain. Okay, so... We can argue that what's described there to me seems to go way beyond anything that's ever occurred in the history of Israel or Judah. Right? I mean, because you've got death being completely swallowed up. You have no more tears. So that seems to imply this is... And what's this veil? And the rebuke of the people is going to be completely removed. Well, even if you say it was removed in Babylonian captivity, it doesn't take much, it doesn't take long for them to be right back in a very same situation, right? And what are they doing in a roundabout way? What are they doing when you open up Matthew? Aren't they still waiting? They're still waiting for the redemption of Israel. They're still, remember, even when Jesus gets ready to ascend, what did the disciples ask? We've looked this up multiple times in the last couple of weeks. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Right? They're still waiting for it. Everyone was waiting for it. So that tells me that they're waiting. Their anticipation still hadn't happened. So I am going to argue that whatever that's pointing to, it hasn't happened. And the only place I can put that, once again, will be the millennial kingdom. Right? Where Israel will be, in a sense, saved. So now so everyone else wants to make it metaphorical and then just forget Israel gets cast, cast out and then it just becomes for well, what God did for salvation. Well, you, you, there is some salvific language there, but once again, he specifically addresses his people, right? Now, why do you think then they, want, they added Matthew 15 as the gospel reading? Because I, I would be, now I know it has to be a gospel reading, but when I read that, where are some places you go in your mind? When you read the Isaiah passage, where are some places you go in your mind as a cross-reference? Okay, where in Revelation? Okay, go look it up real quick. 
Now, I know they couldn't put revelation. I mean, they could have if they structured the lectionary differently, right? But there's only two readings in the weekday uh, lectionary. So they're going to have to have a gospel there. But yeah, I was thinking revelation as well. Where, Where would you go in revelation? Where would you go? Where would you go? I think everyone feels Revelation is somewhat where we would go. Where were you thinking? Okay, 21, where at? 24? Okay, yeah. Now look at 21, 1, all right? I, I, I was going to go back to 1 just to, to, to get in context, right? But 21, 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth with passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall... Wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. All right? So then I will argue, absolutely, that's that's a cross-reference you should put there with with Isaiah 25. You can't skip that. But Isaiah is the ultimate fulfillment, right? So always remember this. Is it not true that sometimes in prophecy, you have a prophecy that has a, we'll call it a near fulfillment, and then an ultimate fulfillment. As far as Israel is concerned, this hasn't happened yet, right? And we believe it will happen at some point for them somehow in the millennial. I understand. People go, well, what's the point of the millennial? If you're going to have a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new everything. I understand. It seems to make no sense. Seems to make no sense to have a thousand years and at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released, right? Seems to make no sense. I agree. We can all agree it seems to make no sense. But because it makes no sense is what makes me think that there's got to be a reason, right? If it makes no sense to me, then there has to be a sense. We just have to figure it out. Because if you make it symbolic that we're in the millennial now, then it's the worst millennial that I've ever heard of in my life. It's trash, right? And if Satan is bound now, what's the difference between now than when he wasn't bound? Like, like the whole, that whole all millennial argument it doesn't work. So to me, the fact that it doesn't make sense seems to indicate that that thousand years obviously serves as a purpose for something maybe not directly related to me. And that would be to fulfill promises made to a specific nation, right? Because then at least all of them are fulfilled literally. The curses were, were fulfilled literally, so the promises were fulfilled literally. But then there is then ultimately the ultimate fulfillment, right? Well, there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and everything is better. That's the ultimate fulfillment. But that thousand years seems to be a fulfillment of specific earthbound promises, 
Correct? That's just the way I feel about it. Now, why then Matthew? I know we're running out of time, but let's go to Matthew. Yeah, we're running way out of time. That took a lot longer than I wanted, but we at least broke it down. All right, Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 29. All right. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And so please note, he goes into a mountain, right? Everybody see that? And great multitudes come unto him. And these people are lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many other, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now please note, you got the blindness there? And all of these things... All of these things that people have, especially in that culture, would kind of be something of rebuke, right? That's not, it would, it would not be a good thing to have these things. And then what does Jesus do for all of them? He removes the blindness. What else does he remove? Yeah, he, 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 the thing that would cause them rebuke, insomuch that the multitudes wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Please note, they see. They see it. And what's their response? They glorify the God of Israel. Does that not sound like Isaiah? Sounds very much like Isaiah, right? Very much. You see the correlation between the two? All right. Then what happens? Then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. And now what is he going to provide with for them? A feast. So you have some of the very same elements here. Everybody see that? The same very elements are found. Are they exact? No, they're not exact. Let's not even pretend they are exact. Now, I will argue we should not then look as Matthew 15 as being a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 26. That, to me, I think would be horrible. But it is a like type of fulfillment seemingly to indicate what's ultimately coming and that who's going to be the one to look to to make it all happen Christ but there's something interesting here because what happens here seems to be pretty significant all right for example look carefully at what he says here uh, before Jesus talks to them it says insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak the maimed to be whole the lame to walk and the blind to see now, those are not exact words, but everyone look for quickly, because I'm just going to tell you what to look for. I was going to leave it up to you to find it. But look for specifically, remember when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends messengers saying, are you the one? Find that what Jesus tells them to go tell John. Find that passage where Jesus says, go tell John this. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think there's a similarity here. See who can find it first. Stephen's and John. Anyone else can go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. See if you can find it. Because John the Baptist is in prison. He's having some doubts like, whoa, what's going on? Are you sure you're the one? And Jesus said, go tell John this. 
Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, just the throne. Okay. And the tears. Okay. Oh, right. And you got no more sunlight or anything? Okay. That's Revelation 7. What verses? 9 through 17. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. We don't have time to look it up, but everybody might want to write that down as another reference that seemingly some of the same elements are in Isaiah. Um, it, it's the, 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 the same situation or the same uh, elements are there. So the same elements in Isaiah 25 seem to show up in Revelation 7 and they seem to show up again in Revelation 21 and possibly are showing up a little bit here in Matthew 15. All right. But I want to find where Jesus sends messengers to John the Baptist with a message. And what does he tell them to look for? What does he tell them to look for? Let's see who can. All right, you found it. Okay, <laughs> that's that. That can't hurt. That can't hurt. Okay, Luke seven nineteen. All right, is that the only reference? That's the one we got. Okay, Luke seven, verse nineteen. Whatever we have to do to find it. Okay. And I look at what, I'm not saying this is perfect and I could be way off here, but let's look at it. Luke 7, verse 19. Uh, Luke 7, verse 19. And John calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits and unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Does that not sound very much like Matthew 15? And we think Matthew 15 sounds a little bit like Isaiah, 20, uh, Isaiah 25, right? Then Jesus answered, said unto him, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen. How the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now it's not a perfect, perfect correlation to Isaiah 25. It may not be a perfect correlation to Isaiah, to uh, Matthew 15, but there's a great similarity, right? So what is promised to happen in the mountain, in a sense, Jesus demonstrates uh, in the mountain to some level, and what he does in that mountain is of such significance, he repeats it elsewhere, obviously, that it tells John that do you know that this is the one? This is the one. And we believe in Isaiah, ultimately it's pointing to what's going to happen and who's going to bring all of that to pass. Christ, which is the Messiah. And that's what the Jews were looking for, right? 
The Jews were looking for him to come in, sit sit on that mountain, and make all of that happen, and they were confused, right? When he comes riding into Jerusalem, they think it's the time, right? And instead, he doesn't. He, He goes and dies, but he has to die, in a sense, for these things to be able to happen, right? Because someone's got to pay for the sins of Israel. Someone's got to pay for my sins or your sins, right? And so he pays for the sins of those whom he will save. Now, I know we can get into particular redemption versus universal redemption. We're not going to get into all of that. But in a sense, he pays for all of that. And then, but he demonstrated, Isaiah, in a sense, tells us this beautiful picture of what will happen. Matthew gives us a glimpse of it happening. Jesus comes in, they, they praise him thinking, this is it. Then they get mad, realizing, no, he's not. What is he doing? He's driving people out of the temple, crucify him. He dies, buried, raises the third day, ascends to the right hand of the Father, but he will, but he paid for the sins. And then he will come, and when he ultimately returns, we believe he will return to ultimately remove the rebuke from Israel, remove the, the, the veil, and he will then they will have thousand years of ruling and reigning with him in the millennial kingdom. And then at the end of that, yeah, everything is gone at the end of a thousand years. And there's a new heaven and a new earth and it's ultimately fulfilled. What a lot of people want to do is take Isaiah and go to the ultimate fulfillment. And I got no problem. Uh, that's a beautiful picture, the ultimate fulfillment, right? And Revelation 7 seems to point to it. Revelation 21 seems to point to it. Matthew 15 seems to kind of indicate who's going to be responsible for it, but that does not negate the Israel part. And I think the Israel part happens in Revelation chapter 20. But all of it seems to say this, that that everyone's hope, the hope for Israel and our hope is for someone who will on that mountain ultimately do away with death, wipe away tears, provide a feast that we, in other words, a provision that we will never lack again. And remember, Jesus uses that as a point of salvation ultimately multiple times, right? Eat of this bread and you will never hunger again. Drink of this water and you will never thirst again. In salvation, he provides everything. Advent is us looking to that ultimate coming when all of this will be taken care of. But that ultimate coming can, that ultimate fulfillment cannot occur without the first coming. He has to die and pay for the sins of the people. So he had to come the first time and then in his first coming, he starts doing some of the things that are seemingly mentioned in Isaiah in smaller ways, right? He does defeat death with raising people from the dead. He does feed them. He does heal them. So some of those things are happening, yes? But then ultimately... He still has to die because what's the, I think a roundabout way to say it, what is the one thing keeping anyone from getting the promises God has made? Sin. And the only way we can get those promises is God has to pay for the sins. And then because of his righteousness, then we are in a place where all of those promises are ours. So so I would say do this. Put Isaiah 25, what was the uh, specific verses? 6 through 10a. Right? Take that, connect it to Matthew 15. What were the verses? I don't have them in front of me. 29 to 
30, what is it? Matthew 25, 29 to 37. All right, so we got Isaiah 15. Yeah, okay, all right. Isaiah 25, 6 through 10a. Matthew 15, 29 through 37. Revelation 7. Well, no, I'm going to Revelation 7 first. Revelation 7, what was it, Sarah? 9 through 17, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, down, 1 through 4. And then, just for an additional cross-reference, we have Luke 11, 7, uh, Luke 7, 22, where John the Baptist is given the things Jesus is doing, which sounds a little bit like Isaiah and Matthew. And it's pointing to that to say, hey, this... Jesus is the one. He is the one. Now, you were like, well, if he's the one, go ahead and do all of it, right? Jesus doesn't do all of it. He, in a sense, gives them a preview. And the reason he can't do, I I hate the word can't, but the reason he doesn't do everything is because he has to pay for sin. And then, because he dies for all, all sin, then those sinners can then Receive all of those blessings that are theirs in Christ. There you go. Now, we're out of time. That was a lot to put together. That was a lot of passages to try to put together in like 45 minutes. I don't know if we accomplished it, but we did our best, did we not? Okay, those are all, you see how when you put the readings together, how amazing it can be trying to put it together? I just don't want us to walk away thinking that Isaiah 25 is fulfilled in Matthew 15. It's not a complete fulfillment. It's a, it's like a, it's like a step in the ultimate fulfillment. It's a, it's a preview. It's a hint at it, right? It's in a mountain and it's similar. It's so important though, that Jesus takes some of those things to tell John the Baptist, look at what's going on. I am the one. Okay, well, great. Am I getting out of prison? Sorry, no, you're not. Okay, you're gonna die, right? So he dies in prison, right? But then when we continue reading, we get to Revelation 7, we're like, ooh, that sounds very much like Isaiah 25. And then when you get to Revelation 21, you're like, there's the ultimate fulfillment. Now, Revelation 20 will be at least the part of the fulfillment for Israel. There we go. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, these amazing passages with great promises and prophecies that takes us so long to try to figure out and understand. Lord, I know we barely scratch the surface on all of that, but I pray that it will be beneficial and helpful and give us much to meditate on this first Wednesday of Advent. Let us continue to think not only about your first coming, about your son's first coming, but also his second coming. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,